Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, February 27th, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together. I can't believe it's already February 27th. Hard to believe this month's over. Uh, this is show number 267, and tonight's guest is meteorologist Mace Michaels. Uh, Mace wears a lot of hats in the weather industry, but uh, most importantly, He's got probably one of the coolest gigs uh, that I know of around here. We're going to talk about that. Mace is uh, the meteorologist for the Minnesota Twins, and he also does some work for Weather Nation. So I'm sure if you uh, have Weather Nation on your TV dial, you've probably seen Mace a time or two on there. So uh, we're happy to have Mace with us tonight. You are watching a live broadcast, so uh, we would love for you to interact with us tonight. You can do that one of many different ways. We have uh, currently live streaming on our Facebook Live, our Periscope, and our YouTube page. We'll be monitoring those pages throughout the event tonight. So if you have any questions for our guests or for our panelists, uh, feel free to uh, submit them that way, and we will cover them uh, throughout the show um, as uh, as they come in. So we would love for you to, uh, to submit those questions or comments if you have any. And if you're listening on the podcast version, we'll let Mace uh, – out his uh, social media information towards the end of the show. And that way, if you have any questions, uh, you could tweet them to him. So again, uh, welcome uh, to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you tonight. And I will go ahead and bring in Mace. Uh, we are going to kind of switch it up a little bit. We're going to do our weather segment towards the end, our weather news segment towards the end of the show. So I'll go ahead and bring in our guest tonight. Uh, Mace Michaels joins us from uh, Minnesota, a cold Minnesota, I would assume. Uh, Mace, welcome to the program. Hi there. Thanks, Scotty, for having me on tonight. Yeah, no problem. We are happy to have you. Uh, glad we could catch you before uh, opening day. I know that's rolling around here pretty quickly. So uh, we're looking forward to uh, talking about uh, your uh, your interaction with the Major League Baseball and the Minnesota Twins. But before we do that, one question we always ask, at least our first time guests, that is, is how did you get caught up in this crazy uh, weather world that we are all living in right now? What's uh, What's your weather journey? It started at a young age. I was into it when I was four or five years old. I wanted to, to be into meteorology. I loved weather. Minnesota, of course, no holding back on all four seasons. We have it all here. Uh, too extreme quite often, as you hear about. So uh, that was where the intrigue started when I was really young. But I was always interested in broadcasting as well. So uh, through my parents, grandparents, they always encouraged me and uh, gave me fun things like uh, radios and TVs to play with, because, of course, we have to go a long ways back to where I lived in rural Minnesota. So uh, rabbit ears and antennas and the best you could do to get in any stations. I lived and grew up about two hours from here, so uh, north of uh, the Twin Cities. So we were kind of in rural country, which, again, great for weather observing, but kind of quiet on the uh, broadcast side. So I learned as much as I could at a young age and uh, went to the University of North Dakota at the same time, uh, worked in radio in high school and also through college. That of course helped to pay the college bills and then also led me to uh, my career that uh, began in TV way back in the mid nineties, a long time ago. And as most folks in TV will tell you, it's always a journey. So it started in uh, Wausau, Wisconsin. I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan for a couple of years, uh, then Fort Myers, Tampa, uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and then eventually back here up to the Twin Cities uh, about five, six years ago when I started with Weather Nation. And now I'm doing all this fun freelance stuff uh, and, of course, working with the Twins. Uh, by, by far the, the most interesting and uh, one of the best jobs I've ever had. Yeah, that, that's got to be a cool job. We're looking forward to talking about that. But you were talking about the different cities, um, different areas that you covered. 
uh, any significant storms or anything that kind of uh, that comes to mind as as you kind of revisit the places that you've uh, already worked through the the broadcast room? Uh, any major stories or storms or anything that you've covered uh, during your uh, time coming back to Minnesota? Um, when I think back here to Minnesota, we've you know we've had in the last five or six years. Uh, of course, the blizzard of last year in the later part of April, uh, three days for us for the twin side, it uh, buried us in snow uh, with uh, totals up to 20 plus inches in some areas. So that being in the later part of April, which is a real rarity up here, that's probably the one that sticks out the most for uh, me, at least since I've been back here in the Twin Cities. And of course, it canceled three baseball games. So that even made it uh, a little tougher. You're not worried about uh, too much snow in April in Minnesota, let alone a blizzard that takes you out for three games. We had to postpone our three games with the White Sox. Wow. So uh, I think you mentioned you, you had a few stops in Florida. Was you able to cover uh, any tropical events, any, uh, any maybe severe weather events that kind of stick out to you uh, throughout your career? Uh, in Iowa, of course, I chased a few times. It was much more on a local basis. And most of the time I was in the studio, I was the chief there. So I was uh, on the air Monday through Friday. So if there was a weekend storm, I might be able to sneak out and chase that, but really wasn't too often. So I was more or less looking at, uh, you know, the good old scary clouds and reporting on tornado watch days than actually getting to chase any really uh, fun storms or really interesting storms. Um, in Florida, I lived through the fun of late 90s into the early 2000s to the late 2000s. I was there for about 10 years. So the real uptick of hurricanes, uh, the 2004 season where we passed through all the alphabet and got into the uh, the next round of names. So covered quite a few storms there in Tampa. Thankfully, we didn't take too many direct shots. They were all kind of glancing blows, caused many problems. But we had Charlie, which looked like it was coming right down at us and ended up veering away. And then the other four storms that season, uh, three storms that season that uh, passed by us at weaker states than they uh, did in other areas of the state. But uh, that was quite a crazy season in, in a three, four week span. I was at the station almost all the time for storm after storm after storm. And I'll go back to my first uh, tornado coverage storm way back in Wausau. That always sticks out, that first time storm uh, doing a wall-to-wall -wall, uh, event of, uh, of a tornado we had touching down uh, an F2, F3 at that time in, in Adams. And it was uh, one of the most uh, devastating tornadoes they had seen around in that area in a long time. And I covered the, uh, probably if you go back to 1991, you may have seen the uh, tornado video from Minnesota, the Gull Lake BIR tornado where that tornado is coming across the lake and they're shooting it and then it blows the windows in that one I was covering in radio live a different aspect of covering it on radio live but uh, we would get the information filtering in off scanners and from the weather service and from law enforcement after it happened having no idea that was the type of tornado it was other than looking at radar and knowing it was pretty bad so it's it's amazing to see how much technology has improved and the internet and computer age really changing things from the beginning of my career to the current time. Mace, that is the perfect transition into the question I wanted to ask. So you've obviously covered a lot of weather events over the last uh, 28 years or so. Um, so how have you found that social media has affected uh, your job? Have you think that's, uh, seen it as a rather positive thing or have there been some downsides um, to it? 
Uh, the positive side would definitely be we can get reports, we can get information so fast on the social media side. It, it's amazing how quickly we hear from everybody, uh, especially on the Twitter side. You can get uh, reports so fast on Twitter. It seems like anybody who's in the Twitter universe, they're tweeting you right away when there's some level of damage or some nasty type of storm going on. Um, obviously, the negative side, there are plenty of folks who want to let you know when you're wrong or when something goes wrong, and you can hear from them immediately. Um, that's probably the hardest side. Uh, some of them are pleasant. Most folks are good, but there's always the uh, the trolls and the not so pleasant, and that makes it a little, little tougher. Uh, I haven't experienced that as much. I've kind of moved out of TV from the day-to-day -day basis away from that uh, as uh, the Twitter and Facebook universe was ramping up. Um, my last days, at least on the chief side in Iowa, was in the early 2000s, and then I worked Weather Nation after that. Now I'm kind of working remotely for Weather Nation, doing a lot of their uh, online stuff articles, uh, writing things, and then also doing uh, social media. So I'm not doing the on-air as much other than when there's reports. When there's something going on here in the Twin Cities, I hop on for them. So I don't hear from as many folks uh, social media-wise as I may have about five, six years ago. Uh, so yeah, it's really changed though from that aspect. Uh, I enjoy it, especially from the uh, side that we get storm reports. Absolutely. Yeah. Twitter, as you were mentioned, is definitely my favorite platform. It's amazing how much you can learn uh, and seeing the storm reports from all across the country. It's just fascinating. Okay, so now tell us a little bit about Severe Studios Radio Network. Um, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to jump in and say we started. Feel free to jump out on me like that. Sorry. Uh, no, you're fine. Okay, we started about three years ago. Um, we were approached by some folks here in the Twin Cities that were ramping up kind of their news division. That didn't end up working out for that aspect, but we had already had our base of about 20 stations, and we've kind of stayed at that and continue to grow out. At the same time with the folks at Severe Studios, Corey Hartman, uh, we also own a radio station over in Baraboo, Wisconsin. So uh, we're already supplying weather for that station, let alone our other affiliates, Grand Forks, uh, where I went to college, University of North Dakota, uh, Bemidji, uh, which is in northern Minnesota, shoot across Highway 2 to Duluth, we're there as well, station here in the Twin Cities, and then southern Minnesota, Rochester, and also Oatana, down in Iowa City, and then, of course, our station in Baraboo. So we have quite a few stations we've kind of ranged out, and it's uh, mainly on the forecast side. We're not doing as much live. A lot of our stations are automated or run network programs. So we're kind of the live weather voice, even though we're not always live, popping in with the 30-second forecast. We can update it at any time as they're downloading the forecast from us. And then we also have a script written so it can add in the latest current temperature. We've recorded all the temperatures from 40 to 50 below all the way up to 100 plus. And uh, it slaps it on at the end and kind of meshes it together and makes it sound really clean. So that's a, that's kind of a, a side business that I do uh, along with a few of our other meteorologists at Severe Studios to, uh, to, to, to branch out. I'm still staying in the radio side at least that way. As expect uh, James and Jared to be getting in contact with you afterwards as we try to build our 24-hour network channel here. But uh, you were talking a little bit, Mace, uh, before we, I was going to ask you about the twins, but uh, you were talking about uh, covering a, a tornado in like radio format. Uh, a lot of us know what wall-to-wall -wall severe weather coverage is, is like on TV, but is there any differences on the radio side of things when you're covering a tornado warning or a tornado, something like that? Growing up in, in the 70s and 80s, uh, radio was obviously different then. It was much more of a live element, wall-to-wall uh, -wall when you'd have severe weather. And that was kind of what I grew up listening to. And it was almost 
at that time, uh, radio shined, and it was kind of the preferred format for a lot of folks to go to to listen to severe weather coverage. TV, radar was good, but you still had the old WSR 57s and 74s, so your radar coverage wasn't as good. There were a lot of shadows. The way warnings were issued were very different. You didn't have spotting. Obviously, we didn't have the social media side we were just talking about. But on the radio, people could pick up the phone and call in right away to the station and say, I have a tornado here. I have damage here. So you would get information on the air much, much faster in radio. So kind of growing up around that, that's why I, I began my radio career in the late 80s and early 90s, shadowing what I used to listen to at the stations here in Minnesota. Uh, WCCO AM was the big powerhouse in the day uh, that uh, everybody in Minnesota would turn to when there was severe coverage. And they would go for hours and hours taking uh, where the storms were, but then also taking phone calls and letting people know what was going on. So I kind of shadowed after that uh, as I began my radio career. Then, of course, things change with uh, internet and social media and being able to stream and chase. And TV kind of shines on the severe weather side now as radio is more automated. There are still stations out there that do that type of coverage and kudos to them. We do, of course, with our radio network, whenever we have severe weather going on, we break in with the uh, local DJs there at each station and, and keep them informed. There are still some stations that do that. And that's kind of the nice side about covering severe weather to answer that second part of your question. You have unlimited time, at least on the radio side. So like we're doing tonight, you can just kind of talk about something more in depth. TV, we're in quick. We're out quick unless it's a big outbreak. Uh, so you're not going into more in depth of what's going on. Radio, you can really say what's going on, explain things in a more detail, take phone calls, uh, look on social media, watch chasing video as it's coming in, really get into things in depth. So I still prefer radio coverage over TV coverage. Plus, you don't have to look at me. You only have to listen to me. So that, that's kind of the plus, too. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's, um, you know, that that's that that's something that I, I think would help everyone. You know, you, you kind of are telling a story because you don't really have radar for people to look at if you're doing it on the radio. So uh, it definitely helps out. Uh, so let's talk about the coolest job that I think any meteorologist has. Uh, you get to work for uh, the Minnesota Twins. So uh, kind of a two-part question here. How did you get hooked up with the Twins? And then what is uh, what is your day-to-day -day operations once baseball season uh, starts? Well, I'll story tell then again. Going back to 2010 when the Twins uh, opened up uh, the brand-new ball field here, uh, Target Field, uh, they knew new grounds crew coming in because, of course, it was in the Metrodome before, so you didn't have an outdoor grounds crew, new head groundskeeper, and uh, building a platform around that. And Larry DeVito, the head grounds crew, head groundskeeper, he uh, wanted to have a little more weather reinforcement just because Minnesota, again, we can have snow in the beginning of the season, September snow would be pretty rare, but it could happen. But again, in the beginning of season, we can have it. Our opening day this year is in the end of March, last Thursday in March. So uh, it's a concern. We can be very cold, obviously rain at any point in time. Uh, you go from your stratiform rain in April to all the convective stuff you can get on and off through April and the rest of the season, be it cold front and slow lows to severe weather issues. So he wanted a little more of a background weather than going to a weather vendor or having to rely on MLB's uh, weather contracts. Um, and he was a, uh, he approached uh, one of the meteorologists that was out at the National Weather Service, retired uh, head meteorologist out there, the MIC in charge, uh, Craig Edwards. And uh, Craig at the time had retired from uh, the NWS and NOAA, and he 
was still living here in Minnesota, interested in the the part time job working with the Twins. So uh, he he definitely, being a Twins fan, was uh, very intrigued with it. Talked to the folks there, Matt Hoy, uh, uh, Vice President Operations, and then also um, on the uh, you know building up side of what we would do, what we could do, and they developed the program from there. Uh, when uh, Craig was ready to retire, he was doing some radio with Minnesota Public Radio and working with the Twins. So kind of twofold when he decided to retire. That's when I uh, asked uh, Craig, who, who who should I contact? And and then kind of got lucky from there, being able to talk Matt and Larry into uh, hiring me. And I also work with another meteorologist. There's two of us who handle the home games, uh, Todd Nelson. We uh, take care of things. He handles the uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday home games. I handle the Monday through Thursday games. And whenever one of us need to trade or anything like that. So that gives you kind of the background. The Twins were interested. There weren't any other teams that had a meteorologist on site. And they wanted to have that aspect of being able to talk to the meteorologist right there so I can get the updated radar picks right away. I spent a lot of time looking at models beforehand, but then it's all radar after that between uh, MPX and also uh, we're lucky enough to have a, a terminal Doppler here. So I'm scanning, looking at both, trying to give an idea and get an idea of what those storms do. And you can imagine when you just like when you're out chasing, when you're looking at one pinpoint, how things can change and how things can move around you when you're not expecting it in just such a small micro scale environment. So in the last three years, I've learned a lot about how uh, little scale things can affect how thunderstorms move on into the area. You know, Mace, um, I'm a meteorologist for the Charlotte Motor Speedway. So I know the pressure that comes with, you have a lot of folks in this, in this small enclosed place and you have storms all around. I, I talk to us about some of the pressure uh, that it brings with with lightning and people's safety. Uh, there, I probably have ten to fifteen days where I really have to worry about weather. There's probably twenty to twenty five where I'm watching something in the state, but the threat is lower. So we figure out on average ten to fifteen days are the you know the worries where we have to be worried about a postponement or it actually happening or a delay or something like that. So it's only those days I'm worried about. All of the other 20 games I'm getting to sit, if I'm lucky enough, if there's a spot behind home plate off to the side. Otherwise, I'm in that little closet, like you mentioned, in that small little closet, watching uh, my radar. I have Gibson Ridge, uh, radar scope, uh, and about every other radar tool you can imagine to be able to sit there and get as many updates as I can. And, you know, it, it, you're really concerned about when it moves in, just like you would be with the speedway there, when something will begin, when something will end, and try to give them the most accurate forecast that you can. Um, because again, we're just worried about that one a small square area of a storm moving in and affecting us. Uh, I can think of a couple of times, I'll look at traffic cameras sometime to see how hard it's raining, because of course we can play through a light rain. And just to get the ground truth of, yes, the radar looks like this, but you know, in some cases that light rain may be lighter or heavier than uh, really what that good old blue or light green is showing the uh, or lower DBZ levels, uh, how it transitions to how heavy it may be falling. Also getting that ground truth when it's pouring hard, we can look at just a couple of exits or so up on the interstate and get an idea. Okay, it's hit there. I know that's two miles away. It's moving at this speed. This is how many minutes away it is for us. And we can try to keep the umpires updated through the grounds crew to give them that exact time of when they can pull off. Uh, and the quicker we can get the tarp on, the quicker I can let the grounds crew know to get the tarp on. When it comes off, the less work they have to do on the field afterwards. So uh, the more we're able to let the umpires know, hey, in five minutes, this isn't just going to be a light rain. When you start to see it come in, Let's get off the field right away, even if it's just a little light rain, because when it starts pouring, it's going to be rough. 
the quicker we can cover up the field, the better we'll be for later on. So we're not sitting here for three hours and then having to do an hour of maintenance on the field after everything quits raining. Mace, that's, that's really awesome. Like, I, I think that, you know, every team should have a meteorologist on site. It, it kind of blows my mind that that's not some, not standard practice. Um, have you ever run into recalcitrant umpires? It's like, no, no, we don't need to call a game just yet. You know, have you ever run into anybody who's, you know, maybe giving you a hard time about lightning, about you know, uh, things of that nature? When it comes to the lightning side, that's more of our uh, internal operations. They're concerned about that for the stands and everybody else. So I'm letting them know, and they're getting the same lightning alerts on their phone. So they're they're down already seeing me before the lightning is moving in. They'll let me, you know, they'll hit me three, four hours before the game if we have a squall line moving in. Is this one going to have lightning? Do I have to be concerned with it? So I let them know from that aspect, and they're already usually down there with me well before the line hits, uh, just to to be aware from that side and let everybody know what's going on uh, uh, lightning wise. But when it comes to the the umpiring side, it kind of depends on who the crew is. Uh, the younger guys or uh, an older, well-established crew and how to, you know, some of them like to wait until it's raining a little heavier. Others, they tend to see what we're seeing and they'll listen uh, or, or take my advice a little earlier and they definitely want to get out of there. But also if we're into a certain time of the year and that, that affects things a lot, scheduling as well, um, to be honest, if both teams are not in a race and in a hunt, uh, we may play right up until that rain gets going and we won't postpone uh, to worry about starting pitching and things like that. The last thing you want to do is have the game start. Some of your ace starters get going through two innings and then a squall line come in and you have to pull them. So yep. we'll tend to postpone ahead of time or not postpone, but delay the start, get the squall line through and then start the game late. If we can get an idea of when that will move through. Thankfully, I haven't had too many like that, but you get really nervous when it's a light rain situation and you see that light rain moving up. We did have one uh, where it was an April storm, uh, had kind of a Northeast wind flow. The dry air was eating at the top end of the storm, but you can name every model was just giving us a deluge of rain. So we decided to cancel. Um, Seven o'clock was game time. Everything had us raining. The South Metro was raining pretty steady. It didn't get to us downtown uh, until about 9, 9, 15, and then it was drops. Then the heavy rain came in at 10. So it would have been an uncomfortable game, 40 degrees and raindrops on and off, but we could have probably got a game in. Unfortunately, we did end up canceling it. Uh, so there's little situations where you have victories and losses. The week before that, I had a great little victory. Uh, I, we Heavy rain in the forecast. But I saw that we had a window on the HRRR of maybe two and a half, three hours, started the game quickly on time, kept everything moving. The rain started at about six and a half uh, innings in through. So we ended up canceling or postponing, delaying the game after that, waited out, wasn't able to finish it. Twins got a win. So I was happy once the time we canceled the game. So you have your victories and losses in the weather department as much as we have them also uh, on the field some nights. Well, my wife is a grew up in Minnesota as a big Twins fan, so I know that when we go to Target Field eventually and see a game, I'm going to feel a lot safer. Awesome, <laughs> let Scotty, me know. Yeah, all... <laughs> uh, absolutely, Scotty. All you, buddy. All right, thank you, Jared. Um, we have a, a viewer question, Mace. Uh, this comes from uh, Ed English, and he was talking about. Um, he said, "Hey, Mace, it seems like various computer models generate most of the weather forecast." 
how much do you rely on your own interpretation of the weather data when forecasting? He said he would hang up and listen off air. So <laughs> I know a little radio lingo there, but how do you determine that? You were kind of just talking about the HRR giving you a little window. You know, weather data and weather models are important, but it's, it's not the gospel as we like to say. I know who Ed is. Uncle Ed, he listens to one of the radio stations I do a lot of work with uh, in Iowa City, DJ work, and then also we do weather for them. Um, I, I still do the forecast the old-fashioned way. I'm looking at the models, but I'm using as much of my own background and interpretation to try to get a feel. And, and like I was saying, I, I was thinking of that one storm where we had the northeast wind coming in, and I can't think of how many times the northeast wind has burned me on start times in the younger years of my career, uh, knocking down the dry air and you can really see that dry air intrusion even more than you can and uh, back from the old days of the NGM when I was young and it would throw warm fronts in here and bring up a lot of rain sometimes six eight hours earlier than they would so I still build off of that as much as I can looking at the forecast but you have so many models you can look at now um, we went from when I was younger to looking at DIFAX charts that would give you six to 12 hour clips and you'd hope the printer wouldn't jam up because there always would be a big storm coming in and you want those uh, models to come on in so you can get a good look at when the storm's coming at us to now where everything's in front of me here on the computer and I can look at as many frames of the European, the UK met, let alone all of our American models as much as I want and then uh, the private models like the uh, IBM folks with the RPM and their new one coming out. Uh, and, and then you have uh, uh, the HRRR, which is updating all the time. Every hour, you've got new information coming in. So sometimes it's overload. And when they're all screaming at you, this is going to happen. Uh, I, I'll admit it's hard to say, I, I, yeah, I, maybe that's when the snow or the rain is going to start, or we are going to see five to six inches of snow coming down at us. And then it starts a few hours later, that first hour or two that the models gave you two to three inches didn't end up happening. And you end up with three and it started after the rush, thankfully. So folks were able to get to work okay, but you kind of busted your forecast. So I still try to rely on my thoughts as much as you can. But when you have so much model data coming at you right now, I, I'll admit I second guess myself sometimes. I, I think we all do. Um, one quick question, um, kind of a fun question here. How has the players and the coaches uh, to go into having an on-site meteorologist, do they do they kind of pull you aside and say, hey, what does it look like tonight? Or uh, do they ask for personal forecasts? I mean, what's the relationship like between you and the players and you and the coaches? I don't see the players as often. You know, I say hi to them. I'll see them every once in a while. But they've got a whole different routine before the game, and they're in a different area than than I am. So I catch them during batting practice occasionally. But uh, you know, management is who I'm usually dealing with. Some of the Twins coaches uh, are more active with us. Others, not as much. So with a new coaching regime coming in this year to the Twins, I'm, I'm curious and interested and excited to uh, meet the, the new coaches and uh, you know get to know them as well. Um, they will come over and ask us questions when things will start and when things will end. And um, obviously, uh, I'm working with our um, folks there in the office for the grounds crew and uh, you know twins management, along with uh, the coaches and such to give them an idea of when it happens. So I probably see a, a lot less of them than you'd think, more or less it's from the other side of the diamond. So I don't know, I don't have as much of a personal relationship with them as I do the grounds crew who I'm, you know, to sit with for hours and hours through the game and, and chat with and tell them more meteorology than they've probably ever wanted to hear. But I ask as many grounds crew questions as I can too. So I'm learning a little more and more each day. 
Mace, that brings me into a question I want to ask. I'm just kind of curious, and you kind of hit on it a little bit, but uh, do you provide, I guess, more of a uh, game time decision based service to the Twins, or is it is it an ongoing relationship, even you know, like medium long term forecast? Uh, it's mainly on the short term side, day to day, and we'll post a forecast kind of written on the board there when we think things will move in, what time. So day to day, yes. But if there's concerns for stuff long term, I'm always looking at it, especially if it's sunny and 80 and a beautiful day. But we know a front's going to move in in three days. We, you know, I'm I'm looking at that, and we're planning ahead. And uh, the Larry uh, Head's groundskeeper will ask me. Um, you know, if he has to do a fungicide uh, spray or something going on, if he knows we're going to have a really hot period with a lot of humidity, that will affect when he does certain types of treatments to the field. So he'll ask me, of course, if we have a lot of dew in the morning, high humidity, uh, certain cases are better for him on how he deals with the field and treats the field, let alone he doesn't want to be out there on a day where it's 95, 100 degrees with the sun beating down on him to cut the grass one day. He may wait till the next day to do it or do it early in the morning. So from simple things like that to more complex, uh, we chat about those type of things as well. Thankfully, yeah. they don't make me worry about away games too much. So I don't have to forecast for Toronto or Tampa or somewhere on the West Coast. But we're we're always looking at, uh, you know, the home ride. If we have a seven-day stretch where we're off or they're out of town, I'm still looking at the 10-day European or the, the GFS out to 15 days. Oh, we might have a front when we come back. Whether or not it ends up uh, gelling and working out to be, we're always talking about both short and long term. But I'm mainly keen on short term. Yeah, that's what I was kind of curious on, especially, you know, like you said, with the fungicide and some of the groundskeeping stuff. Uh, that's something I know I work here locally with uh, some golf course superintendents. So I'm just trying to uh, keep them up to date, you know, really medium long term stuff. But uh, I think uh, Evan's got a question. Kick it over to him. I do. Yeah. So I was actually planning on asking about how winter weather impacts uh, your games, but it sounds like that's a, a frequent thing some years and going back to last year with the blizzard. Um, so I, I'm going to kind of move us over to a question about lightning. What are the criteria for canceling or postponing or delaying a game when there's a thunderstorm in the area? Uh, so for cancellating or postponing a game lightning wise, MLB does not have a rule like the NCAA. So we're kind of worried about anything within the four to five mile radius. And that's when we'll start to post things on the uh, stadium scoreboard. You know, want to head to shelter, move away. But there is not an MLB standard. Um, we've played on with a lot of lightning going on in the distance. So that's out of my area, that's operations, that's MLB. I'm just the mouthpiece to let them know lightning's likely to come in at this time. We've had strikes here. And again, uh, Twins management folks are always in with me asking me how it's moving in. And we'll inform the crowd from there on uh, when it may move in or anytime put stuff up uh, on, on the screen from that side. When you're asking about winter weather, I can pop in and answer that real quick as well. Some years, yes. Other years, no. Uh, when they opened the stadium, which was uh, an exhibition game with the Cardinals uh, in 2000, it was 80 degrees in late March. And the opening day was about 82 in early April. Uh, and then again, last year, third week of April, we had 20 plus inches of snow. And our concern then was, how do we get, uh, it's heated, we're heated underneath. So that's not a concern. We knew it would melt other than we can't melt 20 inches. We were out of town after that. So we didn't have to worry about the next day once the series was done, but it was clearing off the stands. How do you clear off 20 inches of snow for 40,000 people and get that out so we can have folks come in and watch the game. That was as much the bigger concern as it was. We knew the field would be okay once it melts and with it heated underneath, that would happen a lot faster, especially with a very moist water laden snow. It wasn't real cold, so it was gonna melt fast. 
Thankfully, though, we didn't have to worry about either part because the twins went on the road. And by the time they came back, everything was melted. Oh, that's nice. So have you ever played a game with snow falling? I haven't had to worry about that flurries wise. Uh, we have had days where we thought we might have to worry about flurries. Uh, Todd Nelson, the other meteorologist, uh, he had the cancellation games on the weekend with the White Sox when we lost the games last year. And we did lose a game on the Saturday right after opening day. And it was due to 30 degrees and there were some flurries that moved in late in the day. So it is a concern. I just personally haven't had it. Uh, hopefully I don't have it this year, but We'll see. We have a, a record snowfall month here in Minneapolis so far, the most ever seen in February, where we're up in over 30 inches. I think 39 is what we'll end up at. We only have a day to go, but nothing's in the forecast for tomorrow. So 39 inches for us this month. And uh, that, I think, puts us at number four all time. And the records go back to the late 1800s. So it's been pretty snowy. Hopefully that changes and breaks as we get into March here. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. I'm going to toss it over to uh, Scott. Sure. All right. Thank you, Evan. Uh, we'll kind of start to kind of wrap up. Uh, one of my questions was kind of what you just finished talking about the, uh, the winter that you guys have had. Uh, I know you've had some uh, really cold weather up that way. Uh, but one, one question I'm really interested to hear your opinion about, uh, you started off in the broadcast sector uh, on TV and you've kind of went more into a, the private sector slash consulting. Um, as we continue this journey for the next 10, 15, 20 years. What, where do you see the weather industry? Obviously, there's still going to be a need for TV, but what is your viewpoints? What is your, your thinking on, on where the weather industry may be in the next 10 to 20 years? You know, that's that's a good question and kind of a tough question because I'm kind of on the cusp of that and trying to figure that out myself. Uh, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, will I still be working in TV in 10 years? I would have said yes, and I would have figured so. But just because of the way things ended up working out, I was in local TV news, and then the Weather Nation opportunity came up for me here in Minneapolis, and it got me away from the TV news side. And once I got opened up into how covering weather like that was for a channel that went all the time, um, I, I lost the interest of going back to TV. I still do some freelance. So I work with the local Fox station here. I, I work with some stations in Iowa and also in um, uh, South Dakota and in uh, Southern Minnesota and Rochester. So I still do a little TV from that side, let alone reports for Weather Nation when there's something going on here. But uh, I would have not thought I'd be not doing the day-to-day -day TV side. Thing. But the industry has changed a lot. News has changed a lot. Uh, how people watch the platform, how people view TV news. Um, it's a different business than it was 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. So when other opportunities popped up, like the Twins, uh, like Weather Nation initially, and then Weather Nation moved to Denver, and I was already rooted here in Minnesota growing up here, parents, friends here, I wasn't interested in moving. I just ended up uh, being lucky enough to hook on with the Twins, uh, knowing Corey from Severe Studios, working from that aspect on the radio side, and then still having contacts with Weather Nation when they were looking to make some uh, improvements and beefing up things on the social media side, I was lucky enough to be able to pop in and work with them. But to ask or, or answer your question that you asked about where meteorology will be, I think there will be a lot more in the private sector. Um, so many people look at me and ask me the forecast based off of their phone. And how many phone forecasts are actually done by a meteorologist? Very few. It's an app. Um, whether you're using an AccuWeather app, whether you're using Dark Sky, many of the different ones like that, um, 
it's still an app that's usually driven off of a model in some way, shape or form. And uh, like, uh, you know, whether Weather Channel has as well, weather.com, whatever mesh that they use for between forecasters and also model driven type stuff. So there's always going to be a need for that meteorologist. And it really shines again when there's severe weather going on. But I think you'll see a lot more going on in the private sector with uh, how the improvements are going on there, whether it's from just the simple, or I don't want to say simple, but uh, more simplistic side of developing apps to approach the public and how they use it, the, the kind of quieter side, or to more of the corporate side where more corporates, uh, corporations get into hiring meteorologists or hiring meteorology services like the twins, like you have there with uh, in Charlotte with the Speedway, uh, or private businesses as it is. We know about the aviation industry. Uh, the local chapter of the AMS, uh, I was uh, speaking uh, or listening, uh, our local AMS chapter here, we were at Target a month ago, and how their uh, disaster planning unit plans for things. And obviously, meteorology is a huge size to, uh, side to that, and uh, there's that corporate aspect. So I think we'll see more and more of that as custom-tailored information is more and more uh, important to the business sector and as forecasting and models improve and improve. Uh, what that means for the meteorologist, I don't know. I guess we'll kind of have to adjust and see in what areas we're interested in. There'll always be the TV and the radio side, I think. It just will kind of change and, and gel. And, and the more you know and the people you know, as it always is in broadcasting, helps you out the most. Yeah, Mace, I just want to follow up with that. You know, we're talking about you know, where the industry's going. Uh, how do you see the, the, I guess, the chaser side of things, actually being able to, you know, with some of the technology advancements, especially like, you know, live view packs and stuff of that nature, being able to actually bring people weather as it happens from the field? I think of when I uh, just moved up into Iowa, and that was 2008. And of course, we were dealing with uh, 1X, and you were lucky to get 3G on the cell phone so we could get back great pictures. And we were using small pictures and blowing them up. But still, it was awesome to that first time to be able to show our live images out in the field of some type of, uh, we had a couple of tornadic type storms we were showing on the air in Cedar Rapids. We were able to cover snowfall, big snowstorms, and show how the road conditions were. So speeds like that uh, on the internet side have really helped us out uh, being able to show that aspect. Like you said, a uh, live view and the different type of uh, viewing that you're able to do with that. Now you can show these great images to where even a lot of TV stations, they use the live truck less and they're using the live view packs almost exclusively or more often. Uh, when I worked with the Fox station here, the majority of the live stuff I did wasn't out of the live truck. That was used only when we had to beam a newscast back from the state fair, uh, which we used fiber most of the time. But when the fiber failed, we had to use the old truck. Otherwise, I was on uh, off on some ride or interviewing some kids or chowing down some food with the photographer with the live view on his back. So that's really nice to be able to send back those pictures out in the field when we're chasing a storm. But then from the different side of uh, when you're talking about chasing, now, the, you know, the cell phone like this is everybody has one and taking video is so easy for the public to be able to do. Maybe not necessarily from the chasing side, but uh, if I'm out here and I look out my window and wow, there's a tornado, it's real easy for me to stream video or send back a picture. So that's kind of changed the chasing industry too. Everybody will always be able to chase, but being able to sell that video or hook up with the TV station um, unless you're well established or with a, a group or something, that aspect has kind of changed because eh, the way media works, uh, they can get the information or get that video from so many different people now rather than the smaller group of chasing. So I'm sure all of you who chase a lot more than I do, I'm usually in a studio or in a radio uh, booth 
Um, I'm not getting to go out in the field, but it's grown from a few chasers to hundreds on, on a certain event. And that kind of has changed things, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. I know last year, the, the picture behind me is actually the storm that created the Tuscat Wedge uh, May 1st last year in Kansas. But uh, going back to the, the being able to sell your footage, that's something, you know, a lot of chasers struggle with and it's something I, I you know I struggled with for a while. I, I've been streaming with live streams media now. So having that third party, you know, be able to work something out with uh, TV networks is is uh, really beneficial, I guess, for a lot of chasers. So. <clears throat> yeah, it definitely is. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of changes from year to year uh, on how things work out. So uh, me not dealing with the, the that side of Severe Studios, I don't know the the full hall and how things work. But I know Corey is always uh, negotiating with so many different people and talking to different stations and networks uh, uh, for uh, you know, selling the video or, or uh, getting the video out there for people being able to see it. That's awesome. And uh, who are we kicking to next, Scotty? Yeah. Hello. Yep, I'll take it. Uh, Mace, we, we really appreciate you being on with us tonight. Um, for those followers who are, are watching right now on our live stream and those who maybe listen on the podcast, uh, if they want to follow your work, how, how can they do that? Uh, Twitter, uh, it's it's in the same on Facebook. It's real easy. Just Mace Michaels, M-A-C-E um, Michaels. Uh, you'll find me there. Hit me up, ask me any questions as you have them. Uh, I'd love to hear from folks. Sounds good. Well, we hope you have a great uh, baseball season. Good luck to the Twins. And uh, if you want to stick around, I'm going to toss it to James, and James is going to give us uh, the latest weather headlines. Thank you very much, Mace. And, Scotty, that's right. As we come up on the 9 o'clock hour, we want to give you some of the uh, top weather headlines that we're following here at the Carolina Weather Group and also we'll be talking about in, in just a moment with our panel uh, because we've got all sorts of things making weather news. And we're starting with this, this headline. Not much of a surprise if you follow the weather industry, but the GFS VFV3 upgrade has been delayed. This comes after some backlash following some shortfalls in real-world testing they've been doing. We've seen some cases where there were some unrealistic snowfall totals, specifically the snow depth and water equivalent of snow depths at the surface have been unrealistically large values uh, when precipitation in the atmosphere has a low-level temperature profile close to freezing. So techniques that either uh, use this variable for driving snowfall uh, were exhibiting that excessive snowfall value. So before they take this into production, they want to do some additional testing. There was also some uh, experience seen where there was a cold air bias in the lower atmosphere, especially from about September of 2018 onwards. So they'll continue to work on that, and uh, we look forward to uh, that model coming out once uh, they got all the kinks worked out. Hey, remember that uh, high wind record? We told you about Grandfather Mountain just a show or two ago. Well, we have a new one. On Sunday, a three-second wind speed of 124 miles an hour was recorded. That beats the record of 121 miles an hour that we recorded just in February uh, 13th of this month. So, very windy day, and uh, we actually have some wind totals from across the area to show you as well, too, because it wasn't just at the peaks of the mountains that we're seeing those wind speeds, but all across the area. We had a high wind warning in the mountains. Uh, West Jefferson, 77 mile per hour. Boone, 70. Blowing Rock, 69. None of those uh, were record-breaking, but enough to uh, certainly uh, garner your attention, and that prompted that high wind warning. And coming up next, we're going to talk with our panelist Chris Jackson about his storm chase this weekend. Uh, he was in portions of the south as we watched storms spin up at least 12 tornadoes across three states, six in Mississippi, five in Alabama, and one in Georgia. The strongest tornado occurred near Columbus, Mississippi. That EF3 tornado in Columbus killed one and injured 11 people. 
numerous buildings were also damaged or destroyed. That tornado had winds of about 137 miles an hour and was on the ground for nearly 10 minutes. Right now, 901, let's bring back in our uh, panel. And uh, Scotty, I know we want to go through some of those headlines in a bit more in depth with our panel. Yeah, I'm going to toss it over to Evan first because uh, we'll, we'll talk about the Carolinas first and then we'll, we'll toss it to Chris and let him kind of recap his chase. But uh, Evan, we're going to tag you as the mountain wind guru because I know you love keeping up with the gusty winds and, and everything. So um, again, another record breaker there on Grandfather Mountain. Yeah, absolutely. So it's only been, uh, I think, over 12 or 13 days between the old record and the new record. Um, so this new record was 124 miles an hour. It happened around midnight a couple of days ago. Um, but the, one of the records that stood out to me that night was it just wasn't just a maximum wind gust. That was a new record. It's also a new maximum sustained wind speed. Uh, they recorded a maximum sustained wind speed of 103.2 miles an hour, uh, which is just kicking. Uh, I believe that's for uh, one minute sustained winds. Um, so that's up there in the category two hurricane strength. Uh, which, which is fascinating. Obviously, Grandfather Mountain is up over 5,000 feet, so the valleys didn't see anything quite of that nature. Um, but it was possibly the windiest night in many years up there. It was very windy. A uh, little report here in the foothills, uh, McDowell County, uh, there was a, a person on interstate traveling towards Asheville going um going westbound and a tree or a portion of a tree actually fell on a vehicle on interstate 40 thankfully uh, no fatalities but there was an, an injury with that so um though not the the 70 80 90 mile per hour wind gusts in the mountains but it was still even windy here in the foothills so uh, a very windy day and with all the rain that was around a lot of down trees and power lines as well so um it was kind of just a, a, a crazy day. At least the sun was out on Sunday. That was something we haven't uh, haven't been able to see a lot of. And uh, that sun that shined here on Sunday shined in the Mid-South on Saturday and created some instability. And that's where I'll bring in Chris Jas Jackson. Chris, you uh, uh, suited up and headed uh, to the uh, Mississippi, Alabama area, and you was out there uh, chasing uh, these thunderstorms. Absolutely, Scotty. I was uh, in Mississippi uh, Saturday morning as the uh, sun began to rise, and uh, yeah, so I started watching this middle of, uh, the middle of last week, and uh, it really looked like it was going to be a, a pretty good tornado setup, especially for this early in the year. So I made the decision by Thursday just just go chase it, and uh, like I said, Saturday I originally went over to uh, Indianola, Mississippi, which is out on the Mississippi Delta on uh, U.S. Highway 82, and you know. I was there by 8, 8 a.m. Uh, Saturday morning, and when storms not uh, expected to really get going until a little after lunchtime, it was, it was really hard to stay patient. I was losing, my, I was losing my patience, and uh, that's one of the toughest things is chasing storms is just being able to be patient. But uh, you know, by one, two o'clock in the afternoon, storms really got going, and uh, I think James uh, has some radar views, maybe loaded up, James. But um, anyways, by one, two o'clock in the afternoon, storms really got to going, and there we go. And uh, the batch of the storms really started to develop south of US 82, uh, just north of Yazoo City. Uh, the first uh, storm went tornado warned uh, around three o'clock. And then by 4.30, I was uh, near Philadelphia, Mississippi uh, on this storm right here. And you can see my little GPS location, uh, Gibson Ridge. And then by 5.21, I was literally knocking on the tornado's door. Like I was, I was in the rain curtains uh, of the tornadic circulation as it, uh, 
you know, approached the Alabama state line and uh, eventually started to dissipate as it got dark uh, in Aliceville, Alabama. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, Saturday was a, a pretty crazy day with some of the storms and stuff. Yeah, it was a crazy day. Um, our thoughts and prayers are with those folks who um, were injured and the, the family who suffered the fatality and all those who uh, received damage. Um, hopefully, uh, it won't be a, a crazy severe weather season down that way, but it always stands the possibility um, with that. So we're closing out the month of February. Uh, we got one day left. Uh, meteorologist Tim Buckley out of uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, WFMY, he tweeted out something that I found really interesting uh, late last night, or maybe it was early this morning, one of the two. Uh, but it looks like that the Greensboro area, and that can actually translate down to the Raleigh or down to the Charlotte area, uh, out towards the foothills and even towards the Raleigh area. Uh, this is the first time in 28 years that uh, Greensboro, Charlotte, North uh, Hickory, Raleigh, Fayetteville, places like that has not recorded uh, measurable snowfall in the months of January and February. So it has been 28 years since that's happened. We're, I don't think we're getting snow tomorrow. So that, that seems to be a pretty safe bet. So um, very atypical winter here. You can normally at least buy a snowstorm uh, somewhere in the Carolinas in February, but uh, that's not been the case. But it is going to get colder around here. Uh, we are going to see a uh, storm system move in over the weekend. That's going to bring some rain. Uh, there's still a few outliers saying that we could see a little wintry weather in some parts of the Carolinas um, over uh, the beginning of uh, over the weekend into the beginning of next week. But we do know the temperatures are going to be colder. Uh, I did send a graphic to James. I'm not sure if he got it before the show, but it was the uh, Climate Prediction Center showing uh, well below uh, normal temperatures expected for a good chunk of the Carolinas. So it does look like the first week of March is going to be extremely cold. So uh, looking back, though, overall, February has been a pretty warm month here in western North Carolina. I'm going to bring in Jared Smith here. Uh, Jared, you in the Charleston area, it's been pretty warm down that way. And if I'm not mistaken, it's been not as wet as it has been here in the Western Carolinas. Yeah, that's correct, Scotty. We've we've been under the influence of at least a little bit of ridging, and so that's helped keep the storm track to the north. Uh, and it's also kept us warm, of course, by the standard of the last couple of years. This has been a, a, a been a downright freezing uh, February, even we've had barely no freezing temperatures at all. Um, but for the first time in two years, we are not going to set a warmest February on record at the Charleston airport. We're going to set the fifth warmest uh, February on record at the Charleston airport. Um, right now, average temperature 57.9. Um, got a couple days left in the month. Uh, looks pretty good that we're going to get at least number five in there. And again, last three years, last three years have been uh, five, uh, have been very warm Februarys. You know, again, at 2017 average temperature of 59.4. That was the old number one. And then last year, uh, average temperature is 62. That was that's that one I don't think we're going to touch for a while, but you never know. Um, so yeah, February has been a very, you know, very interesting month with, uh, I call it fake spring and it is fake spring. Uh, we've seen some signals in the models next week that we could see a freeze. Frost and freeze conditions uh, make it very close into the Charleston metro area. And again, for those of you who are living down here, one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, our median last freeze is about March 8th at the airport. And that goes up to like March 24th. You're getting inland towards I-95. And so um, it can freeze as late as tax day in a lot of uh, coastal South Carolina. So 
again, something to keep in mind if, if you know, it's always tempting to get a head start on your garden and everything like that. But we want people to be aware that, you know, you could still see some freezing temperatures. You could still see some things that might not be so good for these guys. Um, you know, in 2017, we had a very warm February and then that was eclipsed with a very hard freeze that happened in March. And that caused, that was our first billion dollar weather disaster of the year in 2017. So you can never underestimate um, the power of cold to do damage with that. So just something to keep in mind. Um, but we've been enjoying it and, and, you know, it, it, I kind of wish we got a little bit more of that rain because we're about four inches behind, but we're going to make up for that this week. We've got some zonal flow aloft and we're going to have some disturbances moving through. And um, so we're going to make up for that. But yeah, if you need some rain, be, uh, Jared, we can send you some from up here. We got plenty. Yeah, I'm sure you could. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sure you could. We do we do need it. You know, it's it's kind of we're back to abnormally dry this first time we pinged on the drop monitor in a while. We'll have a new one tomorrow. Um but, you know, we'll be in that zonal flow, and then we've got a disturbance that's going to dig in a little bit for Saturday. We might we, – a couple days ago, we were thinking maybe there might be some thunder with that, but nah, not not nearly as fun. But uh, so it goes. Back to you, hey, Scotty. Hey, hey Jared, Jared, I want to get in real quick. Have you looked at the uh, forecast for Sunday? I have not yet. I, yeah. That Sunday looks interesting. Yeah, Sunday does look interesting. It looks like, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of shear, at least 50, 60 knots of bulk shear mm-hmm. uh, for the afternoon on Sunday. So that's something I'm watching. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I've been, I've been looking at, uh, I did a little survey of the American models this morning. I evidently didn't look at the Euro, but, um, you know, they've been kind of back and forth. We've not had a really good model agreement uh, down the road. Um, and surprisingly, the FE3 does not have it snowing here. So there's that. Yeah, I was, I was, Going to say, uh, Jared, uh, most of us here in the Western Carolinas are battling our wettest February on record. So we would be happy to share some of that rain with you um, down there. So uh, one thing before we uh, before we end the tonight's show, be following us next week. It is uh, Severe Weather Awareness Week for the state of North Carolina. So we're going to be putting out some graphics and some videos throughout the week. I'm sure we'll also probably do a segment on next week's show. Uh, talking about next week's show, it's kind of... Uh, we're going to be talking about getting ready for the storm chase season. Brent Adair from uh, Severe Storms um, Live, Storms Media. Live Storms Media. Sorry. Uh, he works with Chris. And then uh, uh, Brendan Kopik, I believe, is also going to be joining us. So uh, we're going to be talking about storm chase season and getting ready for uh, what the severe weather season may bring. But we're also going to be talking about the uh, Severe Weather Awareness Week for North Carolina. And I think – South Carolina is the week after, so uh, back-to-back weeks of severe weather awareness for both Carolinas. So uh, we'll be talking about that all next week as well. So we hope you will join us next week as we get ready for severe weather season. Uh, We're going to be talking about chasing and and what these guys do to get ready for uh, the chase season. It's uh, it's a lot of work to get logistics planned out and uh, to get ideas and groups together. So we're going to be talking about that and hopefully probably show you some cool footage of, of chases of past. So... We hope you will join us next week here on the Carolina Weather Group. Again, we are live every Wednesday night at 8.15 here on the Carolina Weather Group Facebook Live, Periscope, and YouTube page. We hope you have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week.